With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode eight. It is titled, What If Everyone Worked Only Four Hours a Day? That's an interesting question, and it's one that I, I've thought about, and I've, and I've alluded to, if you recall, in episode five, we talked about the true cost of the thing, and we discussed Henry David Thoreau and how he structured his life so that he only worked four hours a day in the morning, so his afternoons were free to explore, to write poetry, his, his evenings were free. In other words, he had substantial leisure. And, and leisure is one of those words that has gotten kind of a bad rap. Leisure in the traditional sense were activities that we pursued that were inherently good for their own sake. In other words, we, were, we weren't doing them to earn money or for any other reason. We did it for the sheer joy. Now, those leisure activities might be kind of, I mean, some people work like activity. It would be hard. I mean, you put in effort, but it's leisure because we do it for the sheer pleasure of doing it. That's what Thoreau is after. And there's another couple in 1932 named Scott and Helen Nearing. They're from New York City, and they decided in some ways to follow the Thoreau model, and they moved to Vermont and later to Maine, and they only worked four hours a day, and they called those four hours their bread labor. And it was the time that they spent working to grow their garden. I think they grew blueberries and other berries and other fruits, what they would sell. It was time to work on the shelter. They had four hours of their day that they spent in service activities, helping out in the community. And the final four hours were spent on these leisure activities, activities that were inherently good for their own sake. And that was how the Nearings lived. They wrote a book called The Good Life, and they did it for decades. Now, this is an interesting question because, as I mentioned in Episode 7, there is a British economist named John Maynard Keynes who, in 19 early 1930s, during the Great Depression, gave a talk, which was later published in a book, where he actually raised that question because he looked at, he felt one of the causes of the Great Depression was the fact that businesses had become so efficient at producing things that there there was essentially an excess of workers. And as he forecasted out the trend, he saw within 100 years we would continue to be so efficient at working and making things, so so productive that we would be able to satisfy all our wants, all our needs by working only four hours a day. And there would, there would be full employment and everyone would have a job, but they would only have to work four hours a day. That was his prediction. As we've discussed in the last episode, the prediction only partly came true in the sense that 
the the income per household actually followed the path that he projected. What he didn't foresee was the fact that our needs, not even our needs, our wants, would expand dramatically. We live in bigger houses. Instead of having one car, we have two or three cars. We buy more things. We buy more entertainment. And, and effectively, we have so much more things to buy that we're not working four hours a day. We're working eight, ten, sometimes twelve hours a day. Now, it's an interesting question because we can look at it from a personal standpoint. What would our life be like if we only worked four hours a day? I, I, I mean, I know what my life is like because that, that's probably about how much I work, although you, you wouldn't call it work because I don't get paid. But work-like activities comprise three or four hours a day. But I often wonder, what would the entire economy be like if we only work four hours a day? Because that, that, let, me, let me start with a, a story. I had a client that hired me and my firm, my former firm, back in 2009, 2010. This was a large, well-known environmental organization within the United States, although they had a global presence. It was a foundation, so they were not-for-profit. And their fundraising activities and their investing all contributed to just one environmental organization that, that did environmental work around, advocacy work around the U.S. So I started working with the board and the investment committee of this foundation. And, and my job was to help them restructure their investment portfolio. And, and it was interesting because last time I mentioned in episode seven, there are, there are three ways to invest when it comes to the future. The one is to completely ignore the future. This is the buy and hold investing approach where you, you do your asset mix, you choose it, and it's like riding the roller coaster. You ride the market down, you ride the market up, and you hold on for your life. That was one way to invest. The second way was to actually go out and predict the future and, and try to determine what you think will happen or an institution will think will happen and then structure the portfolio based on those predictions. The third way was to react as the future unfolds into the present. And I called that investing on the leading edge of present of the present. What I didn't talk about was the fourth way to invest, which is, is not a, just not a really good way to invest at all. And that's why I didn't talk about it. But it was this fourth way was how the foundation, this environmental organization, had invested. And, and I call that reacting to the past. In other words, you're not predicting the future, you're adjusting your portfolio based on what just happened. And, and the way to do that, and the way this organization did that, if you recall in the fall of 2008, the, the stock market around the globe plummeted to, to just, just fell. And, and organizations and individuals suffered that had exposure to the stock market suffered great losses. And, th and that continued, those losses continued until the bottom of March 2009. This particular foundation, before they hired me, had, after they suffered the losses in September, October, November of 2008, actually moved a significant amount of their endowment and their other investment funds into cash. In other words, they reacted after the market had fell, not beforehand, 
And then as the market started to recover in the spring of 2009, they were still in cash. And it was, it was in this period that they hired me to work with them to structure the investment portfolio. And, and we were in the process uh, of selecting managers. And, and, and I, I worked, the investment committee was probably eight to 10 individuals. And, and we worked and we tried to figure out what should the right asset mix be? How should we get back into the investment market? And who should manage the money? Because they also were, were diversifying away from one of their, their, there was essentially one manager managed the bulk of the assets. Now, many environmental organizations have, they, they like to use what's called socially responsible investing. In other words, and many not-for-profits do this. They have their mission, and then they want to make sure that their investment portfolio is aligned with their mission. And so they'll hire managers that, They'll give managers specific criteria. We don't want these type of companies in our portfolio that do these things. And, and with this particular organization, we, we talked a little bit about it, but it just wasn't something that they wanted to pursue. They, they did, and I've seen this time and time again, they, they compartmentalized. In other words, they, they thought, okay, the investing is the investing we will help our environmental organization by earning the best returns we can on our investments and not worry about whether it's socially responsible. And, and they, could, they could justify this to some extent because they were going into a lot of mutual funds and, and funds where they just couldn't necessarily control what the manager did. And we kind of went through this process. We hired a bond manager, a fixed income manager, that was... Just, I knew the team well, our research group knew the team well, and we hired them. And they were a manager that was sponsored by a, a large multinational bank. But this was sort of a sub-team based in not even the headquarters where the bank was. It was a very, very good manager. So we hired them, and they, they managed the money for probably two or three months. And then it occurred to this foundation and the board that their senior environmental organization had an active campaign against the CEO of this bank and against the bank in general because they were lending money to fund mountaintop removal to mine coal. And, and that's when that was this was a wake up call to this foundation. They realized, hey, we're giving what we have the name of this environmental organization on our foundation. It's in in the title of our organization, while we're not, while our responsibility is to raise funds and manage the assets that we give to the senior environmental organization, our name is still there. There's a conflict here. We can't be having a bond manager who, granted, is not doesn't have anything to do with the lending side of the bank, but still is in the portfolio. We can't be having them do that if the senior, the, the other environmental organization, is, is fighting against the bank itself for their lending activities. And it was at that point that we started working with the foundation to restructure the portfolio again to add more socially responsible investing managers. Now, what does that have to do with working four hours a week? I bring it up because I, I, we all compartmentalize. We, we, we say, all right, here's our investing activities or here's our financial things and our budgets and, and how we go about things. 
And then we have the rest of our life, the things that we care about, what we spend our time working, the leisure I mentioned, the activities we pursue for their own sake. And, and rarely do the two meet. One of my goals with this podcast is not to compartmentalize, to not just focus on here's how you invest, here's how the economy works, here's how you meet your long-term financial goals and, and ignore the consequences and the connections of our actions. Is there a way that we can achieve our personal financial goals and benefit overall society? This is one, one reason I retired from my job managing money was, it was because I had taken compartmentalizing to extremes. My, my job was to, as a money manager, was to help my clients meet their financial goals, but the secondary objective, and often became the primary objective, was to outperform a market benchmark. We were paid and we were considered successful if we could outperform the market. I found myself having structured an investment portfolio where the only way to outperform the market was for the economy to tank and for the market to fall. And, and that is a terrible position to be in. To, to, I found myself effectively rooting for the economy to slow and the stock market to fall so that I could outperform my index. I realized that was a problem, and I, just, I, just, I finally couldn't do that, and I left. But, so we don't want to compartmentalize, and just as this client, the environmental organization, finally realized, hey, we want to align our mission with our investment portfolio, we want to align our personal financial decisions to benefit certainly what is going to help our overall happiness, but also benefit all society. Now, how do we do that relative to the economy? If you recall, the economy is a measure of the output, the dollar value of the goods and services created within a country. And it's, it's, the, it's the dollar value or whatever the local currency is. It is not the amount of, of things created. The GDP or the economy doesn't even measure how good the stuff is that's created in terms of the benefit to overall society. That is directly related to the individual decisions we make. It bubbles up from the bottom. If we send signals all the time to businesses as to what to produce based on what we buy, if we want to buy very cheap things that harm the economy, that sends one signal. If we want to buy higher quality goods that benefit all of society, we can do that also. And, and that is, if you recall, the way the economy grows over the long term, there's two ways to grow output over the long term. You either have more workers, that's way number one, or two, you become more productive at what you make. And what John Maynard Keynes was suggesting was we would eventually become so much more productive at making goods and, and producing services that we would not have to work. We don't have to work four hours a week. In reality, every, we, we were able to come up with more and more things to make to keep everyone fully employed. 
Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. But look out 100 years. What if we become so efficient at making things with robots and providing goods and services with robots that we hardly have to work at all? What would the consequences of that be? Because if we didn't work, then we wouldn't have income. So... This gets back to this question of leisure. The only way that if we become super, super productive for the economy to continue to be self-sustaining, to continue to grow, to grow in a quality, effective manner so that everyone has, lead, has, has income to be able to buy what is being produced, is if some of those profits that come from becoming more productive actually get paid to the workers that are, are really working less. And, and another way of putting that is, if we only worked four hours a week, we would still get the same amount of pay than we would if we worked eight hours a week. How could companies afford that? Well, they would be able to afford that because we've become so productive at making things. Let me read you a quote by Martin Wolf. He, he gave it in the Financial Times. He says... He's an, he's an economist and editorial writer, and I'll, in the show notes, I'll put a link to the article. He says, we must reconsider leisure. For a long time, the wealthiest lived a life of leisure at the expense of the toiling masses. 
The rise of intelligent machines makes it possible for many more people to live such lives without exploiting others. Today's triumphant puritism finds such idleness abhorrent. Well then, let people enjoy themselves busily. What else is the true goal of the vast increases in prosperity we have created? If we become so productive and wealthy as a country or as a globe, developed economies, one avenue to continue to grow and have everyone still have sufficient income to buy things is workers work less. Some might decide to retire early, but ultimately it will will need businesses to be willing to pay workers even though they're working less. Now they can still have profit, they can still have profit growth, but if we don't do that, the income equality in the country and in the globe will continue to increase. And, and then, well, you just kind of, it just doesn't work. It's just not sustainable. Here's the other way to go about it. You can grow the economy long term by becoming more productive. And even as you use less workers, you can also grow the economy by changing the mix of what is produced and actually becoming less productive and have workers not necessarily work more, but work the same amount. Here's an example. The country of Australia did a study. All countries study how productive are they at their workers and their businesses. They found that the bakery sector was actually becoming less productive over time. And they looked at, well, why is that? Well, they found that consumers started to prefer artisan-type bread. In other words, instead of buying fluffy white bread, they preferred hardier artisan loaves that actually took more time to make. Now, the, these loaves were more expensive, but not so much more expensive that the, the economy actually showed that the bakery sector was becoming less productive. But what's interesting is we could continue to grow the economy by becoming less productive, but by producing higher value output. In other, in, as consumers, we could pay up for art. We could pay up for niceties. For Instead of self-service, we could get full service. And Because just being productive for the sake of productive is not, is not necessarily good. Sometimes being less productive, but having a richer experience, buying, having something that's higher value, buying less things, but the things we buy cost more and are more enriching, the economy could actually continue to grow if we did that. Now, one of the questions is, well, who cares if the economy grows or not? Well, it gets back to, is there a way to align our values and our mission and still achieve our financial goals? If the economy doesn't grow, the profitability of companies is very much tied to economic growth and the returns of the stock market are tied to corporate profitability. So there's a linkage there. But it's not tied necessarily to the type of companies whose profits are growing. And that's where we can actually change the mix. We can, we can as consumers... Think before we purchase. Think about the connections 
or the consequences of what we purchase and, and basically buy less, but pay up for what we do buy, have richer experiences. By doing so, we'll, we will allow more workers to work. And, and even though perhaps the economy is less productive, the economy will still grow. The other option is, and it doesn't have to be one or the other, is in some areas where we don't necessarily want enriching experience, where productivity is key, as it becomes more automated and more productive, then then some workers will work less. Maybe, Maybe many of us will work less, but companies are going to have to pay their workers, continue to pay their workers, a living wage or even more than a certainly more than a living wage so that they'll have money to 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 buy the things and and so it's a fine balance a fine mix at the end though we can live what Scott and Helen Nearing wanted they they called it the good life the good life is something that Aristotle referred to and it in my definition the good life is a life of hitting the sweet spot, just as as in baseball, you want to hit the sweet spot. Hitting the sweet spot in your life is balancing work and balancing leisure. And it's making consumer choices and financial choices that recognize the true cost to yourself in terms of freedom and the true cost to society. Hitting the sweet spot for the economy would be Growing in a way that is sustainable over the long term and improving the the mix. And so it's not a race to the bottom, but that we're actually either, and hopefully both, in some aspects, working less, continuing to receive the same income, but also in some areas becoming less productive and producing and selling higher value output that's more enriching that's more meaningful that's art that's the end of episode eight you can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net even better you can get on that website moneyfortherestofus.net and sign up for my insider's guide where i will send you an email once a week with a preview of the show it will include links to the show notes and we'll will give you an idea whether you want to listen or not. The show, the podcast, is available on iTunes and Stitcher. I would welcome any reviews that you would be willing to give on either of those two platforms. And then finally, I'd like, if you have questions, first off, please email me at jd at jdavidstein.com. If you want clarification or you have a suggestion for a future episode, I'd love to hear from you. Finally, just from a disclosure standpoint, just please recognize that everything I share on this podcast is for education only. I have not provided specific investment advice. I no longer do that, and I've not considered your specific risk profile, so consider this general education. Thanks for joining me, and next episode will be episode nine. Thanks. Thanks.